0: I've included in the notes the references where this record can be found in the other Gospels. Each one of them gives its own unique perspective on the events here. We'll be sticking close to Mark's account today and just be making some references here and there to information that comes from the other Gospels. So we look at Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. That's where we want to begin looking and concentrating this afternoon we read in Mark 6, verse 30, that the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. I want to talk first of all about the place of retirement. It was a quiet, empty, desolate place on the northeastern end of the Sea of Galilee, near the place where Jesus had delivered the demoniac earlier. When you climb away from the small fisher town on its shores, you are soon in empty and what might be called barren terrain. Just before the time of the Passover, and that's when this is taking place, these hills are green. But by the time the travelers who are going to Jerusalem to keep the Passover return home after the Passover, the hills will be brown and dry. Jesus encouraged his apostles to leave the crowds and the business of Capernaum and to travel by boat to Bethsaida and then up into the hills beyond that village. The reason for this retirement was the need for rest, and several things had made this trip into the wilderness wise. The disciples, first of all, were tired, and they had been all about the region, two by two, healing, teaching, and carrying on the mission Jesus had assigned to them. The Savior himself was surrounded by crowds as he carried on his ministry. And when the apostles returned, They would have been sucked into that activity, that activity that swirled around him. And the nature of the work is described by the words, Many were coming and going. That's to give you the idea of all that's going on here. Many people were coming and going. This tells us that Jesus had then, as he has now, three basic sorts of followers those who are his constant companions. Those who are usually present whenever he's near, and those who come and go. The curious and the disinterested. They have a certain curiosity to know who this is. What is this Jesus? They hear about him, and then they go on about other things. And that's his coming and going, this constant influx and outgo of people who hear about him, know of his healing powers, seek healing for themselves in some cases, and come and go. He calls on his apostles to come apart and rest up as as A.T. Robinson has it. This is the only place where Mark uses the word apostles as opposed to disciples in his gospel. And it certainly fits the character of the scene uh, as the uh, men we hear here come back to him, uh, as Gould puts it, return from their apostolic work. So he says to them, you yourselves come apart and rest up, using the same word that's used in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, (coughs) excuse me, for resting. In that passage we read, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And so this is the opportunity for these apostles to rest after this long period of hard and active service. There are a couple of important lessons to those who are in the ministry that we see in this scene. First, the wisdom of making a report of all our labors regularly to the Lord Jesus. When they come back, they make that report. This is, these are all the things we did and all the things we said. And it's even good for every Christian to come to the end of the day and to say, Lord, this is what I did today, and this is what I said. It's a good practice because it will help us to to put in mind how much of the day has really been spent in the service of our king and how much of it has been spent in other things. And secondly, it's important to remember to find a time to rest and come apart. It's necessary in the work of the Lord. McLaughlin says, However much the soul may be on fire with zeal, The body cannot keep up with it always. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. In Psalm 127, in verse 2, it says, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. And he gives his beloved rest. And here he's encouraging his apostles to stop and to rest and to rejuvenate themselves. Now, as true as that is, and that admonition needs to be carefully uh, recognized and I think acknowledged particularly by the people who have a, a, a man serving them and by the man himself, J.C. Ryle makes the observation as well that there are fewer who need the bridle than those who need the spur. So he makes that uh, Indication there that yes, you need to rest, but the truth is, more need the spur than those who need the bridle to be brought back. Now, as we look at the situation here, we want to talk about the political climate, which is also surrounding this scene. News had just come of the beheading of John. It would be good to get out of the limelight for a bit given Herod's moodiness and out of his jurisdiction. And where Jesus takes his disciples is just on the other side of the border where Herod has his jurisdiction. So if you think of the Jordan River, right flowing through the middle of the room here, this side of the room is under the jurisdiction of Herod. This side is under the jurisdiction of Philip the Tetrarch, who is his brother. And so just getting over there, put them in a place where there was perhaps a little more protection for the moment. It would be good also for the group to retire and be comforted and encouraged by Christ in light of the news of John's beheading. It's even uncomfortable for us, all these centuries later, just to read this story of what happens to John. So you can imagine what it was like for those who knew him and loved him and respected him and honored him and felt some community of of interest with him to hear what had happened to him. So to have the comfort and encouragement of Christ in that situation was wise. The third thing is that this is just before the Passover, and the many travelers on their way to Jerusalem would have been in the region and swelling the numbers of those who were coming and going. Some of these might have even been among the throng that was agitated by the news of John's death. And we do know that there was a group that that actually was very disturbed by this. And there was fear in the political uh, realm that there might even be an insurrection. And insurrections were not unheard of in this area, especially when there were a lot of people around. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records the unrest in the area of Galilee by this action against John on the part of Herod. Now, with this in mind, it's good for them to go apart. In verse 32, we read that Jesus tells them to get into a boat and to go to a desolate place by themselves. Then in verse 33, we read, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now, as I mentioned, this was on the eastern side of the lake and the Jordan, and it was a place accessible by land. In fact, <coughs> excuse me, the journey from Capernaum to this region could be covered more quickly on foot. If you hurried, then it could by boat. But going by boat provided a little more privacy. So that was the idea. Let's get on a boat. We'll get out into the water, Excuse me. and these crowds can't hang on to us. They can't follow us every step of the way. So we'll get into a boat, and that'll separate us from the crowds. That's the idea here. For the fishermen among them, it must have been a relief. After all they had been doing to get back on the lake with no sound but the water lapping against the hull, the sail ruffling and the, the rigging creaking, it must have been a re- relaxing from the start. But it was a short lived break. Mark explains that they were discovered and pursued. Some of the people may have very well recognized both the boat and the figures on it. And judging where they were headed, many ran in that general direction. And as they passed through the lakeside villages and towns, others would likely have joined on with them. And soon a large crowd was on the move, going to this desolate place where no one was at the time where Jesus was taking his disciples. Gould says, They ran together. The preposition describes the coming together of the crowd from many starting places to the point for which they saw the boat heading. These people then outwent them. That is, outwent the disciples and Jesus on the boat. Now in verse 34, we read that when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, a great throng, a great concourse. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, before they had much time to even think about relaxing or to settle down, this crowd begins to appear, a crowd of 5,000 men, along with an unspecified number of women and children. Alfred Edersheim describes the scene in this way He first retired to the top of a height and there rested in teaching converse with them, with his disciples. Presently, as he saw the great multitudes gathering, He was moved with compassion toward them. There could be no question of retirement or rest in view of this. Surely it was the opportunity which God had given, a call which came to him from his father. Every such opportunity was unspeakably precious to him who longed to gather the lost under his wings. Edersheim draws that final comment From what we read in Matthew chapter 23, in fact, Mr. Brillhart read that passage this morning in his message, when Jesus is pronouncing woe upon the scribes and Pharisees, he says in Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So Edersheim draws that desire to, 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 bring, them, to bring Jerusalem under his wings and applies it here in this scene when Jesus looks at these, this throng moving towards him in this desolate spot. And I think, beloved, that it's truly touching here to see the reaction of the Savior to this throng, to this throng descending on him in his hour of retirement. The sight of so many poor lost souls eclipsed for him the nuisance that they might have presented under the circumstances. Here he is moving to this desolate place. And he gets his disciples there. They just start to settle in. And what happens? A throng starts appearing. The very throngs he just escaped from, and they escaped from. And already they're forming and coming and descending on him again. His love for sinners dispelled any impatience with their worldly and fleshly interests in him it's good for you and me to remember that this is the opening of the sequence of events that ends like this jesus is speaking to many of these same people at a little later time and he says this in john chapter 6 beginning in verse 63 it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all Now imagine, put yourself in the Savior's place here. You look up and you see this great crowd approaching and you know that when the events of the next few hours run out, most of them will depart and won't follow you anymore. Not just won't follow you around Galilee, they won't won't follow you or listen to you anymore. And yet when they approach He doesn't look at them and say, oh boy, here comes that crowd that I know isn't going to pay any attention to me anyway. And we're just trying to get a little rest. We're just trying to get a little break. And here they come. He doesn't look at it that way. He looks at them with his incarnate eyes and he is filled with compassion for these lost souls. At this moment, when the crowd is forming and following him around the Galilee, when Jesus sees them and sees their approach, he's moved toward them. As Edersheim says, it was the depth of longing and intense, intenseness of pity, which now entered the savior, which now ended the Savior's rest, and brought him, uh, brought down, him down from the hill to meet the gathering multitude in the desert plain beneath. And I just love the way Edersheim puts that. It was the depth of longing and the intenseness of pity which ended his rest. He said, put aside the rest. Look at these people. He pitied them, and he had an intense pity for them. With those words, the great Jewish Christian Edersheim captures the sense of feeling intended by this word compassion. It's as others say, the influence of human sympathy combined with divine condescension, and that's what that's what we're seeing here. He is filled with that pity that comes from seeing those who are lost. In this sense. And then it it is the humbling of himself in the presence of all this to look out on them and to truly pity them. It implies emotion from within that's otherwise difficult to express. How do you put into words pity? J.C. Ryle in his comments on this scene says, It is a poor theology which teaches that Christ cares for none except believers. Let us never forget that our Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. High in heaven at God's right hand, he still looks with compassion on the children of men. He still pities the ignorant and those who are out of the way. He is still willing to teach them many things. Now as far as we can tell, beloved, most of these, most of those gathered here on this day are not going to believe. But they'll be among those who leave Him a few days later. But there's no indication that Jesus looks on this throng discriminately at this moment. There's only pity. The same feeling that in a few days would respond to the pounding of his hands and his ankles into the cross with iron nails. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's that same spirit, that same attitude. Beloved, we have to learn to be very careful and prayerful as we look out on the world as Christ's servants. When the lost appear before our eyes, we need to be sure to look on them with Christ's eyes. It's too easy to look on those without any true spiritual leadership and view them with disdain or even a spirit of hate. Just think of how many false teachers there are in the world and the number of platforms they possess for gainsaying the truth. The religious world is full of charlatans of all sorts, and it's so easy for those who are blessed with teachers and friends who are committed to the word and concerned that they only convey that, what it says in the name of the Lord to forget how many there are who are like sheep without a shepherd. A figure that, as Gould says in his critical commentary, denotes the lack of spiritual guidance. You just think about it in the context of our own fellowship here. We have people like Mrs. Lubke and and Mr. Anderson and others teaching, and and Tyler, teaching in in the children. They have an interest in the word. They have an interest in bringing the truth to the children under their care. Those of us who stay in this pulpit have an interest in bringing to you the truth of God's word. We're not looking to deceive you. We're not looking to fleece you. We're not looking to harm you in any way. We're looking to help and to strengthen and encourage you because we love you. Do you understand how blessed you are to have people like that serving you? In contrast to all those out there, you have people instructing them who don't care about their souls, who don't care about their lives, don't care about what God says, don't care if they go to hell or not. It's so easy to look at it from our perspective and say, look at those people. They're so stupid. They're so foolish. They're so evil. They're so wicked. But your Savior didn't look on the lost that way. He looked on them with compassion with compassion. And with pity, they were destitute of teachers. They had no guides but the blind scribes and Pharisees. They had no spiritual food but man-made traditions. Thousands of immortal souls stood before our Lord, ignorant, helpless, and on the high road to ruin. It touched the gracious heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, it should touch our hearts as we look out on this lost world and see it around us, have no one to lead them in the truth. And think of this, too, in the context of what lies ahead. There are moments in life when a sight falls on our eyes and time seems to stand still and a host of thoughts can flood into the mind at the time things past and things present and things future. Edersheim believes that the Savior, with his knowledge of all things, is looking on this crowd with that sort of perspective. These are sheep, many of whom are headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. Pilgrims summoned by the law of God to worship him in the great city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And here they are, wandering into this wilderness, seeking after him. And you can easily see why Mark would have used this way of describing the Savior's reaction. It's easier to picture the green hills rising up from the sea, dotted with this flock of sheep-like figures wandering towards him. Some of them were surely followers of John, perhaps hoping to have heard him when they got to the city. But word was passing around among them that the best of men had been brutally murdered by the whim of a ruthless politician to entertain and satisfy his wicked wife. And now they were wandering sheep. Awaiting them in the city was what might be called a syndicate of corrupt religious leaders, merchants, money changers, and tax collectors, all operating in concert to fleece the sheep. As Edersheim says, with a murdered John just buried and no earthly teacher, guide, or help left, they truly were as sheep having no shepherd. Alexander adds, This is the most affecting image that can be employed to represent the want of nurture, guidance, and protection. The extreme of weakness, helplessness, and eminent exposure both to force and fraud, dispersion and destruction that they were exposed to. As Jesus stands there looking at them in this situation, he knows, as you and I know, there's only one way to save the sheep. Only one way to save the sheep. And that is for the good shepherd to lay down his life for those sheep. So as he sees them coming and perceives them to be sheep without a shepherd, compassion wells up in him because of their plight. And he knows that there's only one way for any of this to change, and that is for the good shepherd to lay down his life. The sheep can only be saved by redemption, and so he must go up to the cross and, he sa- and save his flock. He would say a little while later, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is hired is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there shall be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. These things are just days away from what we're reading here when Jesus looks with pity on this crowd. That is the the work of the cross. None of these poor sheep can be rescued unless he saves them at the cross and provides for them the nurture, guidance, and protection that they so desperately require. Unless he gives to them the grace they need In the light of their extreme weakness, helplessness, and imminent exposure both to force and fraud, dispersion and destruction, they will not escape. They need him and only him to go to Calvary where there's no escape from their lost condition and the bondage of sin and Satan. And truly, beloved, it's no different for you and me. Where would we be if our Savior did not look on you and me with sweet and precious compassion and teach us many things? Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for our Savior. Lord, we confess that we hardly know him. We read these things and we confess that we hardly know about him. What is the extent of this love and compassion that he has had for us that has taken we who, are, who were lost sheep without a shepherd and made us his own, adopting us, being the good shepherd to us, and bringing us light and light. And Lord, we pray that as we look out over our lost world, we'll not lose sight of our Savior's pity and compassion for the lost. Lord, we will make the Good Shepherd known in every way we can so that those who are without hope in this world might find hope, find it in the living hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, Father. Make us compassionate. Please, Father, give us the opportunity to speak with the sheep. And Lord, use us to bring your sheep into your fold for your glory and for their blessing. And thank you, Lord, for bringing us in. Thank you, Lord, for that compassion that washes over us even right now. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.